Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. everyone welcome back to podside picnic as usual i connor am joined by the scully to my molder pete (laughs) um and we are discussing this is this is a book episode and this is a book episode in the lull between months that are themed around uh written texts and their authors um and we picked one that Pete had been agitating for for a while. Uh, he, but he also picked it because it has certain things that I am interested in, and I'm glad he did. It's a very interesting one, and that is uh, the Ophiuchi Hotline by John Varley. And um, I'm going to let Pete tell us about John Varley and his whole deal. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, Varley is. Uh well, we, we've talked about the problems with classifying anybody, but if you wanted to put him on the timeline, he's definitely like new wave. Like the man is not from the golden age. He's definitely pre-cyberpunk. This book that we're going to be talking about came out in 1977, and it was his first book. Um, he uh, He's very weird because, a lo- well, I... He's weird to me, I should say, because a lot of the things he says about his work, um, I find to be completely bizarre, but I also think his work is fantastic. For example, he regards his pole star for good science fiction writing to be Robert Heinlein. Wow. I would not have guessed that based on this book, actually. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I mean, what he is, he is certainly like that you can see relationships between what he's writing here and what he writes in his other books and Heinlein, but it's, it's in a very strange way. So like, uh, uh, Varley is very much in the idea of, of, of sexual freedom and, and technology being good and you getting the ability to make choices. And, he got that from Heinlein being a sex pervert. You know what I mean? Yeah, I was going to say that this is like if you take like the sort of repressed, uh, you know, misogynistic sexual rampages of like the interwar and postwar years. And then it's like in the 70s, everyone like you can I'm, I'm launching into this prematurely, but like oh, go for in, it. The se- in the 70s, this is a great example. And this was not just a genre fiction. It was all over uh, culture, including literary fiction, where it's like. Okay, now we're liberated and we're more enlightened than uh, you know all of those repressed fascists from the fifties. But like, we look back at it forty years later, you're like, okay, this is just the misogynistic male fantasy version, like heterosexual male fantasy version of liberation, and it's it's hilarious to read it, and it's all over this novel, which is kind of a negative way to start off, but it 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 fascinates me. Oh, and I think it's perfectly fair. I he deserves a lot of praise for some things, in my opinion. Like he, uh, some of the things that we have ranted about like oh uh 
Oh God! Well, let me think of a good example. Oh well, like the existence of certain pulp uh, authors, like uh, what's his name, the guy L. Ron Hubbard, loathes him, wants to set him on fire, and is attacking him for his <laughs> writing style. So his his thing was there were a few really good writers historically within the genre. And he wanted to rescue their writing style, and you're going to love this, Connor, from Pulp. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, God, like, it, we use the word Pulp so much, and I was just thinking as I was reading this book that this is one of those books that makes me think, you know, I want a more rigorous term or a rigorous set of terms. Cause, and, I, and I'm always doing the meta thing, too, where I'm always saying, we say Pulp and Schlock a lot in this podcast, because we do. Um, Absolutely. And, and I wrestled with that one, with that a lot in this one, because there are aspects of it that are like uh, um, extremely airport paperbacky, and that's not always a bad thing. And then there are aspects of it that are much more carefully considered. And in some ways, that's like the classic sci-fi brew for a sci-fi, a classic. It's the classic brew for a classic in sci-fi, right? I mean, there's there's nothing unusual about that combination, but sure. And the thing is, I mean, what we're running into is I don't think we're in direct contradiction with what he's saying or anything. We just have, we're, we're defining our terms differently. And that's leading to a weird result. Yeah, my totally. Thought. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm curious about this guy. So this was his first book. I looked it up. He is alive. He's 72 years old. And he would have been uh, turning 30 the year that this came out. 1977. Uh-huh. And that's 77s an interesting era because, as you said, it's it's between kind of the cresting of the new the new wave and it's before cyberpunk and um by the way this book clearly had an impact on a lot of cyberpunk and i'm sure we'll get to that but um predictably because it was one of the biggest books of that late 70s sci-fi i would imagine um but like and that's also like we keep the things we keep bringing up over and over again because we kind of have to the neoliberal turn this is at the tail end of um the old the post-war interwar labor order um, was about to be toppled right as this was coming out. Um, so there's a lot, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's poised at a sort of a precipitous moment uh, for science fiction. And I want to ask you, uh, when did you first read this one? Uh, well, in, in 1980, I was, uh, I was in class and yet, I don't know if you had these, but they gave you these tabbed sections to test your ability to read and uh this a a passage from this book was one of these let's let's test your proficiency in reading things that they gave me and i got i i mean i almost failed the test because i read this and i'm like this is fucking great. What book did this come from? And I like I went off on this path. And eventually I was talking to uh, a librarian at 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 the in Davis, California, and they were like, "Oh, this is the book you're talking about." And I was able to pick it up and uh I've been running with it ever since. I've uh, Varley's weird because like this is the f- start if you don't count short stories. This is the start of his Eight World series. And so he has this series that I love. He has another series called uh, uh, Titan uh, that I'm really into. And then um, over the course, since about 2000, let's say, he's been starting and completing other well-regarded series that I cannot stand. Oh, really? So you don't like him anymore? I like him. I just have decided not to 
buy any more of certain series he's done. And, and I mean, that's okay. I mean, he's he's hit so many out of the park with me, I'm going to let it go, you know? Yeah. Wow. Okay. You know what I've realized? We've gone a ways here and we haven't told our listeners what this book's about. Yeah. <laughs> That's I, I'm on me. Kind of, I'm kind of afraid to. Like, what would you say? Uh, uh, I mean, I'll give it my best shot as a as a, as a person coming to this for the first time. Um, okay. You know, it's set far into the future. It's called The Eight Worlds because humanity has been pushed out into the solar system away from Earth by a very formidable uh, set of aliens called the Invaders, who they who humanity can't even understand, let alone fight. And one of the interesting things, one of the reasons that Pete picked this is I like orcas and the invaders, as far as anyone can tell, and I guess this is confirmed in this novel, uh, they regard dolphins, orcas, and sperm whales as the highest order of intelligence on Earth, well above humans. And one of the reasons that the invaders came to Earth is to protect the whales from human beings. Um, anyway, so humanity has been pushed out and there's a lot of things going on. A lot of it's fairly, fairly typical sci-fi things. Uh, you know, sort of like fanatical dictatorships and starving, you know, agricultural colonies in the far flung parts of the solar system. But a, a few a few th- a few key things. One is that people practice a lot of uh, biological, morphological and genetic modification on themselves. Um, another thing is that you can clone yourself and sort of like have a copy of your consciousness up until the moment when the, the clone copy was made. So one of the things that that he uses very deftly as a plot point is that you can like clone someone and their clone keeps messing up or whatever. And you keep bringing them back at the same moment, (laughs) kind of restarting (laughs) them, which is interesting. Uh, you know, people live a lot longer for this reason and, and all kinds of other things. A lot of it's not deeply explained in this first book. I imagine as you read all of the eight world books, uh, you learn a lot more, but like, I think the last thing that we need to know is that the so-called Ophiuchi hotline is a hotline of alien information that humans have been decoding. It's, it's called Ophiuchi Hotline because it's coming from a, a system called 70 Ophiuchi, or so they think, by a clearly much more advanced alien race that's trying to give them useful tips. And a lot of it is technological uh, advice that they've been incorporating for centuries. Um, you know, And of course, in this story, humanity is, as is often the case in science fiction, humanity is a very very primitive uh, species relative to what they're up against. And um, it seems like every every race they run into, in this first book at least, is just way more advanced and you know, threatening to wipe them out one way or another. Uh, you know, so I think that there's a lot of things I would say, like, like I, I don't want to crowd the mic too much, but, uh, you know, the sort of the clone and rebirth thing, we see that pop up later, and cyberpunk loves that innovation. And I, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if Varley was the first to do it, but I, I'm sure that certain people like Walter John Williams and... Um, uh, altered carbon guy, I forget his name. I'm sure people that use that device probably did read this book. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And also, oh, one other thing that's important here, like, yeah, people modify their bodies a lot, and sex changes are very common, kind of just on a, on a lark, on a whim. Uh, and part of that is that people have different body taboos and sexual codes, and a lot of these people are just walking around naked a lot of the time and having a lot of casual sex, which is extremely 70s. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. But And, like, I, I, I always want to be very careful not to give Varley too much credit, but one of the things he did do here is say, okay, given... Given infinitely good surgery and high technology, what are people going to do? And he's like, well, they're going to go out and change sex at will and invent their own gender. And they're going to turn themselves into badger people like like he 
he very that his understanding of people exploring their own sexuality was bizarrely on considering the some of the other things he wasn't on well yeah and if there were no consequences for changing your body all the time i'm sure that those of us trapped in our fleshy prisons many of us would be doing it there'd probably be like religious cults that were against it but like yeah it would be a thing for sure no there's no i don't think that that to be clear when i make fun of his like 70s take on sexuality i'm not condemning him or saying that he got it wildly wrong i just it's just you see when you see a science fiction novel where like you have a bunch of like attractive or just bizarre, but like very sexualized people walking around naked. You're like, okay, this is we're rooted firmly in the late seventies here. Uh, this is one, <laughs> this is one take on the sexual revolution and it's the hypersexualized, almost pornographized version of it. And that's like fine. I mean, he's not like, he's not like writing pornography. He's not, not everything. It's like graphic sexual detail, but it's just, it just cracked me up and I'm looking oh, this yeah. guy up right now. And I think you've mentioned this to me before, but he, uh, he was a true hippie. I mean, he's the right age and mm-hmm. he lived in Haight Ashbury in the heyday, literally in the high sixties, starting in 67. I mean, that, that was the Haight Ashbury 1967 was the peak of what we think of mythically as the, as the sixties. Um, and he was there. So he was 20 years old and he was there. And so like, you know, I mean, he's on a, he's on a wavelength that has a kind of credibility with um, some of these liberation movements that now feel very distant that, uh, you know, I'm not going to impeach him. And I think it's all very interesting. It's it's an interesting historical artifact uh, in so many different ways. You know, I want to talk a little about what he does with cloning in this. Um, because I think you're you're right. He may, he certainly isn't the first author to say we're going to have clones, but I think he was the first author to play with it in an extreme in a in a particular way, which was he had multiple instances of the same character in competition with each other in different with different levels of knowledge, and he did it in a way where you more or less kept straight who they were. Yeah, so I that is a really great point. I think that if there's one thing I would say that stands out about this book as a real achievement, it's exactly what you just said. It's the, especially for a first novel, it's the really intricate, careful weaving together of the different plot lines, all of which have at their core clones of this person, Lilo, who we meet when she's on death row for illegal genetic modifications. Um, she's going to be executed. And in this in this world, it's very hard to permanently execute someone, but they're trying their best with her. Uh, <laughs> and she gets liberated by this, you know, fanatical sect led by this, you know, kind of comical uh, but sinister politician who has what we call a free earther. He has this big plan to go from Pluto and build up his, you know, forces of weaponry and take back Earth. This is the big fantasy that he has, right? Um so he gets liberated and the different clones, like a couple of the clones kind of like fail out of training or get killed and they keep reviving her. Um, but over time, some of the different clones branch out, end up in sort of different places with no knowledge of one another, uh, different knowledge of what's going on and different priorities. And one is on, on Earth, somehow makes it to old Earth. And becomes like a goddess. Um, slight, slight spoilers here, but it's um, fine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one one sort of leads this liberation movement within this this politician's free earth. Like he has this slave labor camp of all these like you know uh, misfits and outlaws that he's gathered together and is holding it in prison. And this other, so one of the clones leads a liberation movement of that. Um, and then the third one is what's the third one? Help me remember here. Oh, going deep to the Ophiuchi hotline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, uh, was was looking at becoming a what? What did she call them? A synth? The, where where you get the where you get the green putty wrapped around you? Yeah. So you can like one thing that humans have done is melded with these 
alien organisms that are like uh they kind of like float in like the rings of ringed planets and have a different sensory experience and can keep humans alive indefinitely but like you're not really human anymore you've melded with this strange floating creature and we learn that the Oth- what they call the Ophiuchiites, who call themselves the traitors, kind of sent that technology, and it's not as uh, harmless as it as it seems. <laughs> but uh, I mean, okay, there's there's so much detail to go into, and I, and I really think that I mean, where I want to give Varley, I've, I've I've made fun of him. I feel bad, John Varley, for listening to this. You probably tuned out in anger a while ago, but I want to <laughs> I want to say uh, as a serious compliment, um, there's a it, it is a real challenge to create a tight. Inter- a, a tightly plotted but also complexly plotted uh, narrative like this with that many different strands to weave together where we also we have to accept that the same character in multiple instances is as Pete says competing against themselves and, and this complicated set of agendas and it is also a fast paced uh, relatively short book I mean that is that's an achievement and you know it's one that I will find I think I'll find myself learning from for sure very cool well I'm I'm glad you liked it it's certainly not the perfect book but Man, I if if I knew about the perfect science fiction book, I'd have brought it up a lot earlier than this. You know, <laughs> I think you're being too self-deprecating. I think it's I think it's a, a very solid uh, novel. I mean, one of the ongoing things we wrap up against in this podcast is when we do something like um, Left Hand of Darkness, and we agree mm-hmm. that it's a both agree it's a banger, or we do <laughs> uh, a literary classic like. Um, Never let me go. I mean, those are books that set an extremely high bar, <laughs> and not every yeah. novel has to reach that bar. And I think that's important to keep repeating over and over again. We don't, even if we, even if we free ourselves from classifications like pulp or whatever other, uh, however you want to subcategorize or create aesthetic hierarchies, whatever it is you're trying to do, um, I think that we can even put all that to the side and still say that, like, if you're a serious reader. Uh, it's good, you know, not only would it be hard to restrict yourself only to the best of the best, but like, why would you? I mean, this is, this is a fun adventure story that I would recommend to our readers. And if they're listening to our sci-fi podcast, that's probably one thing they're really into. So yeah, I mean, definitely check it out. No don't. So, uh, are, are you familiar with Varley's, uh, uh, filmatic works? Not at all. What are they? Okay, for one thing, what what is the phrase I should have used besides filmatic works? What the hell is that? Uh, cinematic. <laughs> Thank you. Because I was like, was that, was that a word? What just so, happened there? There's cinematic and there's filmic, and you kind of hybridized the two there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, it was it was a combination of feeling very stupid for saying it and also being absolutely certain you knew what I meant. So he is best known for... Uh, in a cinematic sense for two things. The first is a movie about airplane abductions and time travel called Millennium. I uh, don't know if you've seen it. I don't think I have. Okay, well, it sucks ass, okay? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I don't really, like, it's it's a, I really enjoyed the book. Cause, I mean, he, he does basically what what he did with cloning he does it with time travel in that book uh basically it's a it's a group in the future that are desperately trying to get enough human bodies to restart civilization or even like restart humanity and so what they do is they wait for there to be plane crashes and they replace the bodies at the last minute as the plane is crashing <laughs> i think i have heard this this is like vaguely ringing a bell um but so you yeah. didn't like that one? Did he do other ones? Uh, well, he did another one, and it stars. Oh God, uh, 
okay, there's there's an actor he was in like uh, uh, Kiss of the Spider Woman, and I think he played like Bison or something in the Street Fighter movie. He's just like this insanely talented actor that they put in the worst movies. <laughs> uh, oh well, uh, so somebody listening picked it up from that. But anyway. Uh, that particular actor was in this and it was almost like a made for TV movie and it was called Overdrawn at the Memory Bank. And basically what it is, is uh, they developed this technology where you can go on vacation and that vacation is uh, they they take your they take a copy of your current set of memories. They add something cool with to them and they put them back. So you could be a space pirate for three months and come back into your head three seconds later, like oh. that kind of thing. Ah, uh, okay, I get that. By the way, I looked this up. Overdrawn at the Memory Bank came out in '83 and it was in fact a TV movie. And the, okay. the actor you're thinking of is a guy named Raul. I guess Julia. Yes, last that's him. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, that was driving me mad. But I mean, the basic idea behind it is they they uh, this tr- guy attempts to go on one of these vacations, and you know they do the thing with his memory, and then they lose his body. Like they're trying to find <laughs> his body, and so they've they've got him sort of tr- uh, his virtual self trapped in this uh, in this computer, and the line between reality and and uh, and the electronic is getting more and more blurred. And I don't know; it's it's interesting, but it's Lord, it's not a good show. I mean, it's like just just read him. Do not watch him. Nobody's figured out how to make movies out of his stuff. They just can't well, that's, do it. Thank you for the fair warning. Uh, I'll stay away from TV movies from the early 80s if I can possibly <laughs> avoid it. Okay, that, that is not unfair. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I want to put you on the spot here, Pete, actually. Yes. Uh, there was a point, I remember this vividly, I was thinking about it all along, that uh, you compared me as a writer to John Varley, and I'm wondering where that comes from. Oh, sure. Uh, well, there there is a, a couple of things. Uh John Varley is very interested in making a a a tight, smooth story. He's he's interested in um yeah, well let, let me let me tie that part per, uh, that part back first. Uh when you write, one of the things you seem to be very interested in is to have that to have the story move in in a genre fiction sense almost like uh, I don't know, Raymond Chandler or like a pol- police procedural. You want things to go from A to B to C to D at a clip, which is something that John Varley, I think, did very well. You both of you also have a tendency to take to try and put everything in, in one suitcase like uh, this. This book is almost overfill full of ideas. I mean, it works like it's 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 a coherent whole and I wouldn't change a thing about it but that very much reminds me of knife in that you had uh you you sort of had uh free economic zones you had uh sort of a like a coming of age thing going on you had a spy thriller thing there were there was just like that there were a lot of balls in the air and you were trying to 
I was I was gonna say weave them tightly together, but that's a horrible mixed metaphor. Um, <laughs> no, I mean I think that's like uh, you're, you're making me think of, of good. First of all, thank you for all the kind words. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate it as always, and I think you. Um, I like to think of my work in all of those ways, so I appreciate the comparison also, and I think that this this helps us uh, illuminate Varley a little bit more because as I think on it, I think I'm probably selling him a little bit short, right? So this this comes out. Uh, was the first Star Wars movie like 78? Right around when this came out, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, 76, I think. Okay, so Star Wars came out a little bit before this, but I probably Varley probably had written a couple drafts of this before Star Wars came out. Um, I'm betting Luke is shrieking the exact date right now listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Mike's my point, though, is that like, this came out in 77, it's 42 years old, and what that means is that it predates a lot of things that we're familiar with and a lot of the landmarks, like what are the landmarks that we tend to use when discussing sci-fi? We, we tend to use big names like Octavia Butler in the 90s or, you know, Neil Stevenson in the early 2000s or William Gibson in the, in the 80s, uh, Ursula Le Guin at the turn of the 60s and 70s. Yep. And we've already located Varley in that space. Um, we also talk about movies like Star Wars or Blade Runner, Aliens, all of those things. We have this, so we have, we have our own sort of canon that we've created in this podcast that we use to navigate. And the reason I'm bringing this up in the context of what you said about putting things in a suitcase is because the meta, I would use the term that I used to make fun of your adjective earlier. I would say hybridization or crossing genre boundaries. Because I think that one thing you've keyed into here is that this crosses, this this is just doing, there's so many subgenres within this. It's, it's very recognizably a science fiction novel because it's set far into the future with advanced technology in space. So it's, I mean, it's nailing down, it's in science fiction territory for sure. Mm -hmm. But what is it doing within that? Um, there's kind of a kind of almost inverted heist story. That's the liberation escape story. I mean, or like, I mean, I guess, I guess escape is its own genre, like great escape, right? There's an escape story. There's a sort of contemplative, ecological and anthropological, relatively brief part of the book, but like about being on earth among primitive tribes in this planet that's been, co-opted by an alien race, but has not, the humans still exist. They're just, they've been sent back to a very primitive state. Um, there's a lot of like, you know, sort of Arthur C. Clarke or uh, even Kubrickian, uh, you know, speculation about what, how deep space travel is going to work, what you find when you go out into the, the deep dark. Um, and there's a lot of stuff about, Varley is clearly very interested, and I'm sure this is borne out throughout this series. He's very, very interested yeah. in races that we can't, in alien races that we can't fathom that not only can we not defeat, but we can't understand them and how they operate. And um, Which is remarkably anti-Heinlein. Like, I know it's kind of weird to compare him to an author that we haven't really talked about much, but the, the whole idea of this book is that mankind is in the, the, the waiting end of the pool, and we may not get any farther. And that is, that is a, a shockingly non-Heinlein ideal. Yeah, if there's one thing that surprised me, it was when you get to the end and they're being told with great confidence— by this much more advanced alien race. Like you're never going to take back your planet. You're never going to defeat these, uh, this particular species or even this type of species. You just can't do it. They're too powerful. Not only do you not, you know, have the technology to do it, you never will because you can't even understand sort of where their powers come from. Um, and I would guess that as the series goes on, don't spoil it, but I'm guessing that there are some complications to that, like very strong statement. That is where the book ends essentially. Um, exactly. And it's, it was, it was genuinely surprising. That's, you know, that's one way, like that's one of the more, I'm sure that's one of the things that has resonated and made this book uh, more lasting. Cause it is still in print uh, and being in print after 42 years for any kind of novel is no small achievement. Um, 
you know, that's one of the things that I'm sure made it stick and stick in this sci-fi canon continuum more than just being a memorable, enjoyable space opera, however else you classify it. So that gets back to my main point about all the different subgenre bounties across is in the way that it hybridizes things, which is very much what I try to do in my own writing. But putting my own writing aside, it, my point is that probably, uh, you know, and this is where I'm, I'm, as we're doing this episode, by the way, I'm feeling the weight of like, there's certain things that I just want to do more research about. So I'm not just uh, making ridiculous claims. But like, my point is, 42 years ago, kind of casually c- crossing all these genre boundaries and not just crossing them, but weaving them together seamlessly and making it work probably didn't seem quite as common as it is now. We've gotten to a culture, cultural point where the sort of detritus gathering of what is now, you call it post-postmodernism or whatever, it's gotten to the point where, like, if I tell you, okay, uh, you know, if I say, all right, there's this Guardians of the Galaxy movie and it's like... Uh, a comical it's like it's a comedic comic book caper but it's also a space opera and it's also a heist story you're gonna be like okay yeah whatever i get i get you know i've seen movies that like that there there was a time when like just throwing that many different uh elements into the grab bag was not what was being done left and right in fact as you said about him and heinlein i mean heinlein is like you know, one of the grandfathers of the straight to the vein, this is what a science fiction book is writing. And I feel like it's funny to, to think of Varley as trying to do an homage to that because it just isn't like that at all. Right. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't really feel like it's even close. I think uh, like the limitations that Varley is setting for himself seem foolish to me, but he also transcends them pretty regularly. Like, I, I think you're right. This is this is a genre breaking work. And um, I think part of what's going on there is the old shoulders of giants thing. It's like when you have a series of very good authors who who sort of facilitate that uh, we're, we're going to change what the rules are, people can follow. Uh, it's like when we were talking about Gibson back in the day. It's like he started putting out uh, cyberpunk and suddenly everyone did. But like he started the car. Right, precisely. So, I mean, there's, I'm sure that this is, this, I would guess that this book is similar to Voice of the Whirlwind, although this one has been remembered, I think, more, it, it occupies a higher pride of place and sort of like uh, the the broadly uh, curated canon, because again, it is still in print and I think it still has a cultural purchase that sadly, Voice of the Whirlwind, which I like a lot, does not. But again, it's like there, you know, you can see, um, the influence that it has going forward. And I think that's one reason that you end up picking certain novels and sticking with them is because you can see their influence arrayed across other things that you've read over time. And that makes them worth coming back to. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, uh, you dropped something kind of offhandedly back there. What do you say about, uh, Varley you thought undermined himself with the limitations that he set for himself? Oh yeah. Well, uh, like throughout it, one of the things that he has been trying to do is write as he felt the golden age of science fiction should have been. Like, he f- he felt that there were some authors there who were really nailing it, who were doing some important things that needed to be fostered, and then they sort of got sideswiped by some people who were really terrible within the same group, and then all these new age people showed up confusing the issue, and he's like, well, no, 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 no. Like, like, let's go look at Heinlein. Let's go look at Cordwainer Smith. Let's go look at Campbell. 
and let's take the good things that they did and develop them because that's what this genre needs more than anything else. And there are aspects of that that I think he is clearly doing and that they are valuable. Like there's real science in this or at least an attempt at real science. Um, There's a lot of science fiction out there where you get the feeling that the science to the science fiction is just a framing device so you can tell your story. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But when somebody tries to build a coherent future world and bases it on like a, at least an understanding of what could happen in the future, it's a lot more interesting to me. Right. And a lot of a lot of where he gets um, a lot of the narrative frisson in this one is uh, comes from uh human beings being what seems to us now uh, in this novel, quite advanced tool using technological race, and then being told at least at the end that their enemies are not even really tool using, that they sort of bend time and space in a totally different way. uh, And that furthermore, the other tool using races in the universe are far more advanced. And then being given a pretty, you know, a fairly um, robust, so definition is what that means. It may not be as ro- robust as rendezvous with Rama, but it's, uh, you know, he, he talks a lot about the science of black holes and there's a whole industry in this book of um, strange sort of corsairs who go out into the deep space and pull in small black holes uh, for, for various technological uses, which is one of the best touches in the book. Um, yeah. So I mean, He's, uh, gosh, and I'm, th- I'm thinking about this. I'm like trying to imagine being a first time novelist in the seventies and before the internet existed and trying to get your facts straight about black holes and spending oh. time in the public library. Like, <laughs> well, I'm thinking about him publishing this book as a first book in, in his early thirties. And it's like, how do you walk with those balls? I mean, this, this is, I can't think of any book that was really like this at the time. And like, I, there's, there's, there's few things that are very similar now. And it, um, it, it was, it was 40 pounds of ideas in a Ziploc bag. I, I'm, I'm amazed by it. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm telling people to read the book again. You know how it is. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, there's so much to be said about that. I mean, Gosh, um, I yeah, and again, I'm trying to be too negative, but I am very curious. What do you not like as much about his more recent work? Sure. Uh, well, part of it is uh, in in this series, he he's got a, a very broad canvas. It's like he's he's dreaming big. He's talking about what ha- what's happening to every planet in the solar system and in the very galaxy. And uh, the other series I like, the the Titan Wizard Demon series, I mean, he's dealing with uh, the interactions between us and an alien race that is billions of years old. And that race is constructed. It's like there's all sorts of neat things happening. And then in the most recent stuff, it's like, well, this guy develops a faster than light drive in his backyard. And like what happens politically then or. Uh, some terrorist figures out a way to pour something in the ground that will turn all oil solid. And that starts spreading throughout the world. And what does that do to us? And it's just like he gave up the breadth of vision. Ah, I mean, that's what really excited me. So you think 
what you're saying is in your reading at least he became less imaginative and less high concept in his in what he was in what he was doing yes yes and it's still good like those are good books i'm just i'm not interested in reading them like i've i've tried to read them a couple of times it just they never connect to me i don't care about the characters very much the stakes of the novel seems really low. Like, are these guys going to make money or get arrested? I don't care. <laughs> well, I think that this book, Ophiuchi Hotline, does a really nice job balancing uh, precisely that, the sort of, like, more uh, personal or narrow or even mundane stakes for the characters against his really ambitious uh, sense of stakes for humanity and, and his vision for the universe as a whole. Uh, and you can kind of see, like, you can kind of see why this book like dropped so hard when it came out. Like, there's a the blurb on the cover. I'm not sure when this is from, but the blurb on the cover of my edition is John Varley is the best writer in America, and the person saying that is Tom Clancy. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Who, yeah, and like we can we can make fun of Tom Clancy, but like to have someone who's sold a jillion books say that about you is like, all right, that's, that's pretty high praise, right? Um, and you know, you can see why this like this landed hard and kind of established him for the rest of his career. Precisely because at the end of this intricate but also very tight story to be told, like, all the stuff we've been building towards, the, the thought that we're having is like, all right, they're going to go attack Earth and take it back, right? Or they're going to try. And, and then instead it's this intervention where it's like, hey, uh, we have news for you guys. Everything is not as it seems. And in fact, you will never have a chance of fighting your enemies, at least according to the other you know, interloper alien race. Yeah. Um, it's like you're yeah. termites at best. Right. It basically is like, not only does this invading alien race think that you're less intelligent than a dolphin, they might be right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and like, they even scold them. They're like, Hey, we've, we've given you guys so much technology, but it turns out that your weird species has so many cultural taboos that you'll modify your bodies a little bit, but you still don't want to go very far. Uh, from your own physical sense of self. And we think that's really weird because most most races like get away from that very quickly once they have the ability. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a lot, there's just a lot that gets said that it's just very tantalizing and makes you think like, okay, where could this possibly be going? And, and you know, I may have to read the rest of the eight world series to find out. Um, I do want to read a little bit from this to give people an idea of what we're talking about as I try to do with books. I so, was just going to ask you to, that's great. Yeah. So this is start of chapter three, somewhat random. Uh, and he does this thing that's very common in sci-fi where he has, like, you know, dispatches from some authority to give us exposition on what we need to know for I, the next chapter. I was wondering start. if you like the framing devices. Well, I'm okay with framing devices. I think what's funny is that, like, <laughs> as a at least set quasi-literary writer, uh, if, I already, if I use devices like that, I'm going to get yelled at. Um, you know, by, by the important people in my career are going to be like, don't just don't do that. At least for the, I mean, <laughs> I shouldn't, I shouldn't be that categorical about it. There's probably, in fact, in the new project, there's probably going to be a little bit of that that happens. But like, if you, if you start every chapter that way, people are going to be like, Connor, just find a better way to go with this information. But, and you know, that's, that's okay. That's one of the differences between, uh, genre discourse and literary discourse. And I'm all about bridging the gap between the two and arriving at a happy medium. Uh, but I was fine with it in the case of this book, but, uh, okay. So it starts chapter three. We're told that this is Song of the Rings by Clancy Daniel Miter, a collection of early human Simb collaborative poetry. So as a side note, the Sims are the sort of like weird planetary ring creatures you can meld with if you want. Circa 240 to 300 OE, open read rating. Of all the things received over the Ophiuchi hotline, none is more wonderful than the Simb. In the early part of the third century, Sims were seen as the salvation of the human race. Futurists saw the day when each human would be paired with a sim partner, 
and forever free of reliance on airlocks, hydroponic farming, and recycled water. Each human would be a tiny model of lost Earth, free to ruin the solar system at will. It's easy to see what inspired the optimism. The symmetry of the concept is overwhelming. Each human simb pair is a closed ecology, requiring only sunlight and a small amount of solid matter to function. The vegetable simb gathers sunlight in space, using it to convert human waste and carbon dioxide into food and oxygen. At the same time, it projects the fragile human from vacuum and the extremes of heat and cold. The sim's body extends into the lungs and through the alimentary canal. Each side feeds the other. What we didn't bargain for is the mind of the simb. Since it has no brain, a simb is nothing but a lump of artificial organic matter until it comes into contact with a human. But upon permeating the nervous system of its host, it is born as a thinking being. It shares the human brain. The early experimenters learned that, once in, the sim was there to stay. Since that time, relatively few have opted to surrender their mental privacy in exchange for utopia in the rings. Okay, so, nice little tight setup uh, there. A lot of useful information contained in that. I think, I think there's a nice, nice duality to that where you're getting a lot of useful information um, that is directly relevant to, the, to what you're about to read. There's, there's also this strong element of mystery that fuses this book where it's like, his ideas are so ambitious that I think he can't, there's a sense in which he can't fully describe them. And I think it's that tantalization that actually drives perhaps the particular appeal of this book, because he's positing so many ideas that I don't know if when he was writing this, they were fully worked out. I don't know how fully worked out they get in the series, but he's constantly postulating things where it's like sort of not only beyond the boundaries of the science in the story, but it's sort of beyond his own powers of description. Um, and that's a, that's a tricky thing to pull off as a writer, but I think that he does a good job uh, making making me believe in it within the within the world of the book. Um, and part of that is like it, this is all undergirded by this claim that is backed up and explained that Earth was taken over by a race that did not exterminate humans, but just basically disarmed all their technology, destroyed their civilization, <laughs> and uh, and for somewhat mysterious purposes uh, that turn out to be about whales and dolphins, in fact. But it, it uh, which, by the way, we, we can't let this episode pass without saying, like, clearly <laughs> the Star Trek, the Star Trek, that movie came out after this, right? That was, uh, yes. was that early 80s? Star Trek 4? Yeah, it was like 84. I okay, think. so clearly <laughs> when they made Star Trek 4, they had read this book. I refuse to believe that they had not. That 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 has to be the case. Because um, it's, it's just so similar to when the sort of whale, the mysterious, again, in Star Trek 4, the alien invaders are completely mysterious, never glimpsed, never communicated with, never explained beyond they are destroying human technology and about to destroy human civilization on behalf of whales. That's on back whales. In fact, that's like and that is so close to what is going on in this book that there's just <laughs> there's just no way those were independent thoughts. I refuse to believe it. Uh, not accusing them of plagiarism, but you know. Um. <laughs> so Connor, I would like to briefly sprint across the room, grab the next book in the series, Steel Beach, and read a little from the forward because I think you'll be very amused and it'll relate to some of the things you just said. Do it. I love it. All right. Uh, I don't know if we're going to delete this, but Pete is gone. Um, I don't have any profound thoughts. I'm going to go for a run later. <laughs> kind of tired today. Do, do, do. I wish this book had more orcas in it. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. No worries. 
Okay, it's actually an author's note in the back. Um where he's like, when in the course of a writer's career it becomes necessary to break with an established science fiction tradition, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that he should declare the causes that impel him to make that decision. This story appears to be part of a future history of mine, often called The Eight Worlds. It does share background characters and technology with earlier stories of mine, which is part of that tradition. What it doesn't share is a chronology. The reason for this is simple— the thought of going back, rereading all these stories, and putting them in coherent order filled me with ennui. It got so bad, I was just going to give up on it. <laughs> then I thought, what the heck? So yeah, he, he um, rather than go back and reread all of the, the other works and staple them together perfectly, he's like, I sort of remember them. I'm just going to wing it. And I'm so proud of him. Like, what a crazy choice. I mean, that's... I think that I and many other people who write will find that relatable that like you don't want to be <laughs> you don't want to be held responsible for sort of meta organizing everything you've ever written. Uh, and so I applaud him for doing that. Um, I was saying to the mic while you're gone, I'm not sure if we're going to delete it. But in case we do, I want to say I, one thing I do wish this book had. I wish it had more whales because if we're going to hear about the whales, there was one instance very Ahab-like instance with a sperm whale, but I'm like, hey, yes. it's about orcas. Give us some more orcas. That's all. That's my only. That's like my big uh, thing I would have changed about this book. So, but. were you <laughs> singing whale song while I was gone? Is that what you're no, saying? No, that would have like, been <laughs> <laughs> great. Great whale song. I'm just like I'm doing whale. my best, man. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, man. I think that's that's probably a good, pretty good note for us to like start winding this down. Although, if you have more things you want to get in here, please do. I'm just I'm probably tapped out. But what do you what do you oh, anything else you want to say? Well, about this? I wanted to ask you something a little off topic. We could think of as a teaser for the upcoming month. Um, I just bought a game called The Sinking City. Have you heard of it? Uh, I have not, actually. Okay, well, it's uh, it's PS4, and it is uh, a Cthulhu Mythos Detective Noir. Oh, cool. Wow. Yes. So, I, I mean, like, I, I thought it'd mess around with it. If it turns out to be interesting, maybe we could dig an episode out of it, and maybe I could convince you to play if it's fun enough. Yeah, this is a, this is a video game? Yeah. Is it on PS4? Yes. Well, in that case, I probably will get it. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my condition. But now that you've granted my condition, I think we can probably do that. Okay, cool, everyone. Yeah, good reminder from Pete. Um, October is Lovecraft Month. You're probably hearing this around the end of September. So we're probably leading right into it. Um, Lovecraft Month, refresh your Lovecraft memory. Uh, You know, we're going to go deep into the eldritch, non-Euclidean, Cyclopean horrors. So, (laughs) And we'll start posting recommended stories for you to read. Because, like, you don't have to read the whole canon. I mean, you should, but you don't have to. We'll definitely focus on specific stories and we'll tell you which ones. So, yeah. All right. Cool, everyone. And also, uh, Lovecraft aside for the moment, check out Ophiuchi Hotline. It is a brief read. It goes very quickly, and I think you'll enjoy it. Oh, and by the time this comes out, it'll have been Connor's birthday. So uh, wish him a happy birthday (laughs) online. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. You're too kind, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, everybody. Bye, guys.